0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 433 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the second installment of a two-part interview, Sid Moore speaks with Doug Johnston about Essex witches and their influence on her books. Her new project exploring the occult in World War II and the dilemma of whether to address or ignore the COVID-19 pandemic in an ongoing book series. You can hear the first part of this interview in our preceding episode, number 432. We rejoined Sid and Doug as they consider whether the Essex girl stereotype and the terrible history of witch hunts in Essex might have the same misogynistic
1: roots. Sid Moore is a writer, presenter, curator and activist. She is best known for the Essex Witch Museum Mysteries, a series which includes five novels and two collections of short stories. Books from this series have been shortlisted for both the Good Reader Holmes and Watson Award and the prestigious Dagger Award by the Crime Writers Association. Sid has also written two standalone novels, The Drowning Pool and Witch Hunt, and has been commissioned to write a new series set in the Second World War. Prior to writing, Sid was a lecturer worked extensively in the publishing industry and presented Channel 4's book programme, Pulp. She was the founding editor of Level 4, an arts and culture magazine, and co-creator of Superstrumps, a game that reclaimed female stereotypes. More recently, she founded the Essex Girls Liberation Front and successfully campaigned to have the definition of Essex girl removed from the Oxford Learners' Dictionary. You sort of quite seamlessly mentioned the Essex girl stereotype and then went into witchcraft. And it seems to me that, yeah. the, that one has, is just a, a modern manifestation yeah. of the other because they're both just yeah. like societal misogyny on a very simple yeah. level. That, so that kind of the witch hunts were all about power and control for, mm-hmm. for men over women, effectively. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the Essex girl stereotype.
2: Yeah. I mean, and actually, so one of the things that I did with Strange Magic, sort of, there, there is kind of like a logic to my mad. Sp- brawling ramble <laughs> in that I was sort of started to campaign about the Essex girl when I was looking at which I'm, I was looking at the you know the statistic about so many women in Essex and some men but not very many it's something like yeah. 95% women in Essex but the, when I was looking at the, the characteristics I was sort of thinking okay so they're all at the lower end of the social scale when they were taken to court They were unable to speak for themselves they had to have a man speak for them so they were legally dumb and this was certainly the case in the matthew hopkins witch hunt where most of the men were fighting for parliament or for king because it was a civil war but also they were called loose women because they weren't under the protection or shelter of a man right so if you put those three things together and you sort of say low end of the social scale dumb and loose you know, that really reminded me of another contemporary stereotype. Yeah, I mean, at one point, Essex was called Witch County. And I just wondered if maybe, because the, there'd been so many pamphlets, which are like the you know modern day equivalent of our tabloids, um, so many pamphlets about all of these witch trials in Essex, which believed all the kind of like, you know, tortured, hallucinatory testimony that was going out and published it all over the... Country, So people did really think there were demons and witches and the devil was in Essex and it didn't die down for quite a while. I think the last one was about 1737, the last, I think, swimming. So I wondered if people had an idea about these women from Essex and there was something dodgy about that and then as time washed away the memories of the witch hunts people still just had this kind of an idea that there was something dodgy about the women of Essex just like when you're a kid and you can hear your parents talking about funny Uncle Brian and you know you don't know what they're <laughs> saying but you could hear them talking and you grow up and you've forgotten all about it, but you still know there's something a bit funny about Uncle Brian you just don't know what it is. (laughs) And I kind of wonder if that's what's happened to the women of Essex. So in the 80s, when the Essex girl read her big, blonde, flossy head, the stereotype was picked up so decisively and so firmly. It's because people thought, ah, yes, I knew there was something weird about the girls of Essex. That's what it is but actually it had its roots in the witch hunts
1: and the series of books that you're writing now deals with that and explicitly yeah. you had you've talked already about two standalone novels mm-hmm. and then you've got this great Essex Witch Museum books yes. mysteries I guess Um yes. the strange series yes. uh, and that seems like I mean it's a brilliant setup do you want to just explain just yeah. quickly, quickly, what the setup is, and there's been five novels and short stories and, and everything else.
2: So, right, the premise is that Rosie Strange is an out and proud Essex girl, constantly challenging the stereotype. And out of nowhere, she one day inherits the great Essex Witch Museum. She goes down to see it and she she's, hasn't really heard very much about the relative that she inherits it from, so she's quite keen to sell it and use the money to go off and have fun in the beaver. But the museum exerts strange magnetic pull over her, <laughs> as does the curator Sam Stone, who's really fit. And she slowly becomes reluctant and she sort of starts getting dragged into these... Mysteries and murders that start to occur. They are asked to investigate murders which have got a slightly occult or witchy angle to them. So they go off and they do, they solve with these different murders. And she's got a kind of like backdrop. She starts to find out more about her own family and her own real origins. But it's a kind of vehicle for me to explore some of these terrible witch trials. That have happened in Essex, and and to write about the women as well. So yeah. a lot of the uh, excavation of the the witch myth, which Rosie and Sam have to look at, and always the the historical mystery ends up providing clues to solve the contemporary crime. But, you know, they uncover what happened to these women and there's an element of magic, I guess, in the books. I can use sort of things like mind slip, and sort of... With fiction, it's fantastic because you can yeah. just decide to drop back into the past and write <laughs> from that woman's <laughs> point of view. But, you know, the primary aim is to sort of shine a light on some of these women who have slipped through the fingers of history and where we all know about the names of the witch finders. We don't know what their names are. Yeah. So to talk about that... And also, talking about the past, sometimes it's more comfortable for people than talking about what's going on in society at the moment. Yeah. You know, I think it's by looking at the past we can analyse the problems of today and make the future better for everyone.
1: One of the things, reading the strange books, they seem like a lot of fun to (laughs) write because they're a lot of fun to read. They really sort of romp along and the relationship between uh, Rosie and Sam is, is terrific and what's one of the things i wanted to ask you about i mean it strikes me as quite hard to do that time slip thing a little bit you know because it's effectively these are action mysteries in the present day but they're all about stuff that's happened in the past so is Mm. it quite a hard balancing act and also i mean you you do it really well about looking at the resonances between the past and the present Mm. about what happened in the past how that will affect or how that affects people's attitudes now or how things mm. are the same or different or worse or whatever you want to look at it that wasn't really a question yeah. that was a ramble and a, a, co- right. a compliment but so do you have to think hard about how you go back and exactly how you do that balance between the present day and the past?
2: To be honest not really because there are so many myths and legends and trials as well that took place in Essex and I'm really interested in the history pretty much a all of them and because the books have now got a reputation whenever I do talks people come up to me and say oh have you heard about this one over here blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I say oh that sounds really interesting so I've got a massive list of
1: I was going to I was of going of to say and... there must be like an endless list of like uh yeah, of great yeah. research that you can use for future books back to the books a little bit I want to really pick your brains a little bit because you're sort of five books into a series, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just starting the fifth book of a se- of a series. And I was wondering how you're finding it. I, cause I, I was in the planning stages, and I kept sort of rejecting ideas, going, "Oh, this is a bit too similar to that." And also trying to get more of the character arcs and your develop, because you were yeah. talking about developing your yeah. central characters more. Are you yeah. finding that a challenge? Are you are you finding it dead easy? You're just scushing through it. Um,
2: well. Rosie, who I thought, when I developed her, so, you know, she's a benefit fraud inspector, and I kind of, like, chose that, because I wanted to her, she's obviously, she's got an element of the witch about her, but she's also got an element of the witch finder about her, and that, that's in being a benefit fraud inspector. Yeah. And so, I therefore wanted her not to be a, a sort of, a, a really nice character, I wanted her to be a bit spiky, also a bit obtuse at places, um, and also, you can't the way I write, I need her not to be able to see everything. Yeah. Otherwise, this is gonna be a really short book. <laughs> you know, you work out who did it immediately. So, gotta have a like mis- misunderstanding, clues, etc. But what I didn't realise is I thought you know everyone would get that, but actually when the reviews came out for Strange Magic, some people just like completely hated her yeah. as a main character, and uh, I was just like oh. Okay, but she's a a witch fighter, Hasn't everybody got that? She's a benefit broad expectant. That's why she's like that. But of course, no, they hadn't. So I did start to soften her. I think I wanted to soften her anyway as part of the character arc she finds out about herself. But actually, it sort of became necessary to try and keep the attention and the engagement of the readers. And I always had a backstory for her. So the more she finds out about her family, the more she reflects on herself. And also there was a backstory for Sam, uh, which sort of, you know, gives them both the main characters more depth. But it's it's sort of like, how far can you go along the series before you reveal major chunks of information? You know, how far will the reader go with you? Because I don't, you know, I can't see them really going past book seven without finding out who her real father is. So, it's I think it's about just seeing how far you can go. But also, I don't ever want to stretch something out for the sake of it. I'm I'm happy with the way it's going at the moment, and the individual stories for each book, I am also quite happy with. Yeah, and I quite like the way the characters are developing between you and me, it's really difficult to keep the sexual tension going between Sam and Rosie (laughs) because, you know, it's like, I don't, well, I don't really know what to say now, but if if you get two characters that have got sexual tension together, you know, everyone wants them to get together, but then, if you think about moonlighting yeah exactly and they, you know if they get together then it's like oh, blah, blah, all the sexual uh, tension fizzles out
1: yeah and then what yeah
2: yeah and it's, <laughs> so the sort of Mister and mrs investigation team doesn't seem to I can't think of anyone who does it successfully I mean I'm not going to go down the heart to heart line so. <laughs> but yeah it's like that that tension is great to play around with and if it goes, it goes. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. That is, that is one of the dilemmas I have. Although I'm writing a new series at the moment.
1: Can you talk about the new series? Are you allowed
2: to? I think so. Okay,
1: what can you tell me? That sounds interesting um, already.
2: three-book series. Most people know about the Nazis' obsession with the occult in the Second World War, yeah. I think. You know, it's everywhere, really, isn't it, in pop culture? Yeah. Uh, Captain America, Call of Duty, the zombie edition, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) It's all there, the kind of like mad scientists, the weird fringe science and the strange occult beliefs I think certainly Rudolf Hess and Himmler and Adolf Hitler had. Um, and, And actually a lot of Germany was interested in all of these different kind of doctrines everybody knows about that but what people don't know about is how the secret service over here tried to exploit what they saw as a weakness in the german command and we got up to all sorts of crazy goings-on in our efforts to do some crazy occulty type stuff which was sanctioned as i said by what now is mi5 but the domestic security service so we've got sort of weird rituals grimoires tarot and all of it's based in as far as we know it's based in truth there are conflicting reports about who who was part of it so some people have said occultists were part of it other people have said no there were canadian airmen who were dressed up to look like occultists because they just wanted Hitler to get the information that there was this weird ritual going on and they did it because they had German spies in the area. All kinds of very crazy things that we got up to in the Second World War. So I'm looking at a three-book series. starts in May 1940, when right. Hitler was getting ready for Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of the British Isles. And it ends in June 1941. Okay, so... And so, I won't tell you what happens then, but did
1: happen. So fully historical then so that's as an interesting mm. shift has that been quite a challenge or has it been relatively okay?
2: Yeah well you know, <laughs> researching the second world war, it's just like... There's pfft,
1: not much there's, been written about that has there? Exactly,
2: it's just sort of like <laughs> at the beginning I was like oh no, what have I done but yes I think it's better once you get into it and you sort of refine your research refine, 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 and move into it, but it is It, it is. Obviously, some parts of it are fictionalised as well. And it is worth three novels. So I am imagining stuff. And I think what I'm going to have to do, because, again, there are some things that have got lots of different versions. There's an event that takes place which people have written about very, very differently. So I think I'm going to do the classic novelist get-out of this book has been inspired by... Yeah. Yeah which I I like, because with The Drowning Pool, I was trying to keep to the facts as as we knew them as much as possible about Sarah Moore. And then actually it was my editor who said, look, change her name and just say inspired by, and then you've got more leverage, you've got so much more leeway to imagine. I went, oh, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, so I am doing that with this. So a lot of the, they are inspired by true events, but...
1: Really That sounds, really, good. Re- sounds really, really interesting, really fascinating.
2: It is really good. And I'm finding out so much as well about all these fantastic women who were involved with the war effort and some of whom have never been acknowledged. And so I've got still this feminist activist streak running through the writing of it. For instance, the lumberjills, although Scotland has acknowledged them, but we haven't down here in England. Mm. The lumberjills were female lumberjacks who took over the work because we had a timber shortage at the beginning of the war, and so they took over the work. and They were ridiculed, and people because they wore trousers, which meant you were loose. Apparently, <laughs> I know, crazy, but they people refused to billet them. People used to shout at them in the street. And, and they were basically just doing the work of the men who'd gone off to fight to keep the production lines going. But they'd never, ever been officially invited to any commemorations of the Second World War. Wow. Or thanked at all. So there's lots of stuff like that that I'm looking at.
1: Cool. And is there going to be more, I take it there's going to be more strange books, more witch stuff? Yes, okay. yes. So
2: once I finish this first book in the new series... I'm going back to the strange stuff. Actually, this is a quite interesting one for you because at the moment I'm looking at fascism folklore, which ties into my other series. Yeah. But I'm sort of making my way up to 2020 slowly. I'm not sure what to do about the pandemic.
1: Where are you with that? I have just pretended it didn't exist kind of. Um, ah, okay. Because I didn't, I didn't really have any option. The first book came out, you know, before it started. Mm. The second book was already written, but then came out in August 2020. And mm. for the third book, I just, I was writing it in the middle of the pandemic and mm. just couldn't face writing about it. Yeah. Plus, it was also, it was a moment in, it was a total moment in flux. It's like, so you didn't know. Yeah. You know, at that point, you know, at certain points, we didn't have a vaccine or other things, so we didn't really know what's yeah. going to happen. So you can't write about it because you're speculating. Yeah. And the fourth one is now I don't think I have a mention of it, but there's a ki it feels like it's kind of afterwards, I guess. There are one okay. or two elements of that. So I've kind of mm. I've totally hedged my bets a little bit. But I'm I, I wasn't sure that people wanted to read about it, especially not yeah. when it was when it was actually happening. I, that seemed like crazy yeah. crazy to me.
2: Yeah, I agree, I think. I wrote a couple of short stories, but I think that's gonna be it
1: you mentioned short stories there I just wanted to very briefly mm. mention the the strange like short story collections because there's two we haven't talked about them at all how are they to write because they're, they're kind of they're delicious they're like sort of like I don't know Christmassy Tales of the Unexpected yeah, kind of things uh, yeah and they struck you. me as a lot of fun as well to write yeah. I thought it seemed like you were having a lot of fun did you?
2: yeah no I love writing them I really really love it because you're trapped in for the other books I mean Rose's head basically it's first person narrative past tense so and although it's brilliant you are limited by what that character sees what that character thinks how they process information so the the short stories are a way of being able to break out of Rose's head and move into Different characters, and yeah, you, know, you can go backwards and forwards in time. I've got, sort of created this universe so I can go anywhere in it. And for me, it's sort of it, it's breath of fresh air. I love doing them, I love writing the short stories. They're kind of like a, a lemon sorbet in between
1: meals. <laughs> nice like, palate a... nice cleanser. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cool.
2: And um, yeah, they're great. And I, just, I find short stories really easy to write. As long as I've got inspiration, it kind of like will come out. Yeah, and I really enjoy writing them. Thank you for your very kind words
1: As, about And a, is there yeah. going to be more? Is there going to be more, another collection? Do you see that in the...
2: Yeah, I imagine so. My publishers are sort of saying, I've now got four books to write, so they're <laughs> kind of like saying, yeah, write those first.
1: Yeah, maybe just we'll get... About <laughs> yeah. it. The ones so. you're contracted to do, maybe do that yes. first. Yeah, but,
2: I'm But I'm always, I'm always coming up with ideas and I just sort of jot them down and think, right, that'd be a good one for when I've got time. If I ever have
1: time. If you ever have time. Cool. Well, <laughs> listen, Sid, I think that's a good place to finish. Thank you very much for chatting to me. Thanks for your time.
2: Oh, thank you, Doug. It's been
0: lovely. That was Sid Moore in conversation with Doug Johnston. You can find out more about Sid on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode 433, which was recorded by Doug Johnston and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 434, Rosalind Harvey speaks with Anne Morgan about learning another language so well you dream in it, the process of finding the voices for other writers' characters, and the link between writing and translating. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.